you know, we want to tell the best stories. And I think the best stories come from a diverse group of people. And you can't really represent what the reader looks like if you don't have a staff or a team of writers to match. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm speaking with Sally Holmes, the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire magazine. Sally grew up with strong journalism influences from her parents and has had a fascinating career at different publications. In this podcast, Sally talks about the quintessential Marie Claire reader, who's a woman focused on power, purpose, and style. Sally, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on, and I am so excited to talk to you because I think there's a lot of topics here that will be so interesting to our listeners. So thank you for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start by talking about your career. I'd love to know if you always wanted to be a writer and what drew you to publishing and to magazines. I was actually pre-med in college. So I come from a family of journalists. Actually, both my parents are in TV or were in TV news. And I think that my love for journalism, you know, really came from the dinner conversations we had every night. I really tried not to be sucked into that. And I always loved reading and writing. So when I started at Boston College, I was pre-med, but I was an English major. You know, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. That was kind of part of where that came from. And I, I just loved talking to people and that and interacting with people. So I think I was also a big fan of ER growing up. So that, you know, totally <laughs> probably influenced it as well. But I think that I realized midway through my college career that my interest in talking to people and meeting people and learning their stories also really translated to journalism. So I didn't love it quite enough to make it all the way through. I figured out uh, med school, luckily. So I'd always been an English major. I had worked on my high school student newspaper. I'd worked on the college paper. And, you know, I'd always been a big reader and storyteller. I'm sure that my family would back me up on that. So I had an internship at Vanity Fair and one at Scholastic and just totally loved it. I was a big fan of Seventeen Magazine growing up, and I also loved New York Mag and The Cut. So when I graduated college, I applied for an internship at The Cut, and I always say that it's like a boot camp for writers and editors. They they you just dive right in, and actually get to work on stuff. So it was, I would say, a not straight path, but. In reality, it probably was pretty inevitable. And it, as it turns out, my younger brother works at Esquire. So we both really fell into that journalistic path and I think had the bug. So it really sounds like journalism is in your blood and runs in the family through and through. I love that. I'm curious, given all the things that you've written about in the past, is there a specific area you really like focusing on or a specific piece that you're very proud of? One of the things I love about working at Marie Claire is that we do cover such a wide range of topics and everything from activism to celebrity to, you know, the royals and fashion and beauty. It's kind of a magical place to work because you can touch all those things. But I have a ton of favorite stories. One that comes to mind is called The Hollywood Vigilante. It's about an actress, Marisol Nichols, who's on Riverdale, who in her free time works with the FBI to catch child predators. We actually sent a war photographer from the New York Times in to embed with her on a sting, as well as our writer. And Marisol um, either poses as a child or someone kind of setting up this interaction. And then they catch the predators who are targeting young children 
It takes months for them to set up. It took us a couple tries to get the sting right. It felt very both worthwhile and then also at the end of the day is an amazing story to to be able to tell. And she has an amazing story herself, Marisol. So that is one of the standout stories that I've loved being a part of and kind of, you know, working from that nugget of an idea, like, could we actually do this to sitting by our phones and waiting to see what what actually unfolded? That must have been powerful in the moment. So you were promoted to editor-in-chief of Marie Claire during the pandemic. So congratulations, first of all, in that role. Thank you. Tell us what that transition was like, taking on a new job in a pandemic. It was certainly not how I would have expected, I think, to have a new job, I guess. I feel very lucky in that I have been at Marie Claire now for almost four years. I have such an incredible team and a good relationship with them. And I think, obviously, the last... I don't know, is it 18 months? It feels like 18 years that we've been working from home and would have been literally impossible to do without the team I have. Of course, it was a strange time. I, you know, it's funny, I went to um, New York Fashion Week this year and I had people congratulating me and I realized I haven't seen people in over a year. So that this is the first time they've seen me in person, but I've been doing this job for over a year. So that was a funny thing. But I was lucky that I had, you know, worked so closely with the former editor in chief on producing a magazine from home. So we kind of just jumped into it. And it's a pretty amazing thing to think about what we've accomplished and what we used to do in the office. And and literally, you know, a paper would arrive on my desk and I would mark it up and write notes on it. And then you send it to the next person and the next person. And that was all something that we had to pivot and figure out how to do that virtually or digitally. So that was certainly interesting. But honestly, at the end of the day, it's because I have an incredible team who was so supportive and excited about this promotion for me and really embraced working together and, and getting it all done. So talk about the difference in being editor-in-chief and in being a writer. You know, what are the things that maybe you miss from your writing days, your exclusive writing days, but the things that you've gained, obviously, in this new role? You know, I had freedom in two different ways, I think. When I was writing more, I could have a crazy idea and someone else would greenlight it. And then I would do it and you're kind of like, oh, if that, oh if that's so crazy. <laughs> so it's not going to fall on me. And now if I have a crazy idea, it is all me, which is fine and good. And, you know, the magic of this role is that if you dream it, you can make it happen for the most part. So as soon as I took this role, I knew I wanted Stacey Abrams on a cover. I just, she was the first person that I thought of. And of course, if I had been in a different position, I could have pitched that. And it's kind of that incredible moment of like, wow, I had this idea in my head. And now we could actually make this happen. And it did happen. And it was amazing to work with her. And and she obviously is brilliant. You know, as a writer, my team will tell you, I still, I don't know if I'm one of the only editor-in-chiefs, but I'm still an editor-in-chief that loves a red carpet award show, loves a live event. I love getting in the mix, being in the thick of it when, when something big happens. So I do that a little bit less now, but it's still something that I really love and to be in the weeds a little bit. But I think my team would probably prefer I'd be a little less in the weeds anyway. So yeah, there's definitely pluses and minuses. And then obviously in the editor-in-chief role, there's a whole business side of it that I wasn't really privy to or involved in the same way. So that has been supremely interesting and you know, just a great learning experience for me. So tell us who the Marie Claire reader is. Who are you writing for? What are her interests or passions? You know, what does she like when you think about that with your staff, like that audience? This is a, a cheesy answer for sure, but I always think about basically myself. And 
30, 40 something woman who is either at the top of her game or wants to be at the top of her game. She is career oriented. She's passionate. She is also totally multifaceted. So I think it's totally fine and normal and good to love The Bachelor, but also be highly invested in the abortion bills being passed in Texas. It's important to me that we cover both of those things in full ways because I spend all day working on a big feature about an important topic around, you know, we've been talking about the Gabby Petito story and this missing white woman syndrome and this idea that for every one white woman that goes missing, three indigenous women are missing and we never really hear those stories. So that's something that we covered a couple of years ago and that we've been talking about. I can spend my day talking about that, but then I will go home and watch Great British Bake Off. You know, I don't feel bad or I'll go home and watch maybe something serious. I think that for me, It's really important that the reader is respected in terms of many of her interests and that we don't just put her into a box and say, she only likes pop culture. She only likes activism. She only likes all these things. I think we want to give a full range of topics because that's who real people are. So we always describe the Marie Claire woman as the woman of power, purpose, and style. She wants to look good. She wants to invest in the beauty products that will make her skin glowy and healthful and all that stuff. But she also wants to read about Prince George and also something important in the news. Oh, that's great to know that you can come to one place and be taken seriously, so to speak, with all of those interests, whether it is a more heavy subject or something that's lighter. So the magazine announced in September that it's moving to become digital only. And that is a really big shift, I think, for any outlet. So I'm curious how that shift is going. How are you thinking through that strategy? And what would a digital experience look like to a reader or feel like? I will caveat that and say that we will be digital first and that we will still have a print component. But I think that the difference is we've been rethinking what that would look like. So it's not going to be the monthly print magazine that our subscribers have seen in the past. It will be a little bit more evergreen, something that you could go back to. And whether that's like an obsessive guide to everything beauty or a big fashion thick Bible when it comes to um, fall fashion, something like that is what we're kind of thinking about. And that would be just another way to get that Marie Claire experience. Because I do think that print does have a place in our future and I have always loved print, but when it comes down to it, I actually have a digital background and I was the digital director when I started at Marie Claire. So we've been producing digital issues for the past year that are a really exciting opportunity to both move fast, which I think is something that obviously print has a certain timeline that you just can't get around in terms of how long it takes to get to the printer. But I do think that it's a misconception that a print story is somehow better or more well-researched or actually that, that Hollywood vigilante story I was talking about before, we originally ran it on digital and liked it so much, we ran it in print later. Mm, I love that, that multi-channel experience. You know, when you look at your staff, how do you think about diversity and how to maintain that and how to make sure you are getting a richness of experience and therefore voices at the table? Wow, that's a big question. We think about all of those things and, and lots of different factors. So it's funny because someone recently, an outlet just reached out to us and they were trying to figure out if we were left-leaning, they were trying to figure out if we were right-leaning, they were trying to figure out what the, the direction is. And we're not left-leaning, we're, we're women's rights-leaning. We're what's human's rights. We want to tell the stories that we think that our readers 
should know about and be informed about. So whether that is about abortion laws in Texas, whether that's about whether you can get a topic that we did in the spring, I think, was teleabortion and how women who didn't have access to healthcare during the pandemic were able to try to get an abortion or try to see a provider and whether they could do that over a phone call, over a, a Zoom call, people who are driving miles and miles and miles to be able to enter a state so they could have that kind of health care. You know, when it comes down to it, I feel that my staff and Marie Claire in general feels that all women should have access to proper health care and safety in that way. You know, when we're trying to figure out what these stories are, we're not offering any kind of bias there. We're just telling the, the facts. But it is really important to me to present those so that everyone knows all the information. So when it comes to who the writer is, obviously, we're just looking for someone who has the depth of information and, and kind of that access that makes it an accurate, compelling story. But also, I think it's really important to make sure we have a, a diverse roster of writers who are able to share different perspectives because... I look a certain way, my staff looks a certain way, the world looks a certain way. We want to make sure that the stories that are represented really are told through multiple lenses so that we're able to offer different perspectives. So if you're talking to any writers out there, what would you tell them they should do? How do they get the right experience or the right insights and perspectives to go about writing for you one day? Well, right now, I think I'm in a a really wonderful position because we're hiring, which I feel like I haven't been able to say in a, a long time, and making sure that diversity and perhaps widening the pipeline of, of where we find our talent is um, something that we're really focused on and prioritizing. We just, you know, we want to tell the best stories. And I think the best stories come from a diverse group of people. And you can't really represent what the reader looks like if you don't have a staff or a team of writers to match. So right now, what we really think about too is, you know, a lot of our our really big stories also come from the writers that we work with who are not on staff. So our contributors and the talent that we tap elsewhere. So whether it's a cover story or an investigative piece or a beauty story, whatever it might be, when we have the opportunity to work with outside talent and expand our network, that's something that we are always really excited to do and is a big priority for us. That's so nice that you network other people to where they could end up and be more successful. So let's talk about women in the workforce. This is something that we are looking at very carefully in terms of making sure our own employees want to and can stay at work and certainly women outside of our company too, to get more of them back into the workforce. So Marie Claire recently did a survey of working women with LinkedIn. And among the survey findings, you found that almost half of women who participated are considering a career change to pursue more money and flexibility. That is a lot of women to be saying that. And I think we're seeing sort of similar findings out there in terms of women who are either wanting to step away or doing something different. So can you tell us about the survey? You know, why did you conduct it in the first place? And what are you going to do with the findings? So it's so funny. We've been talking about this survey for over two years, which would be pre-pandemic. And we were talking about the state of women in work and what women really want out of work. And my deputy editor, Danielle McNally, she had come up with that idea with the you know, the state of women in work and talking to a diverse set of women around the country about priorities and everything like that. We actually talked to LinkedIn about it then. The pandemic hit and we thought, well, when this is over, then we can revisit. Ha 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 ha. 
And then two other writers on my team came with this idea about the LinkedIn survey seven or eight months ago. And I think really this idea of all of us either feel ourselves or know people who feel burnout, who feel nervous about returning to work, who have left their jobs because of having to take care of children or loved ones, who've lost their jobs during the pandemic. With this survey, we really wanted to take stock of where we are now, but also as we, for lack of a better term, return to office. That's what we've been, we called it, you know, return to work, but that kind of makes it seem like we haven't been working during the pandemic, but it's really returning to the office, returning to whatever kind of normal might look like, well, we can't really do that. We can't go back to normal. Life is different. It's, it's everything has changed. So really trying to figure out what people want. And I think, you know, to your point, some major themes came up. I think flexibility, which never before was something that was really on the table for people when they were negotiating a job. We've proved that, you know, people can work remotely. People can do this many of these jobs from anywhere. Obviously, that's not true for everyone. And that's more of these office jobs. Obviously, a doctor can't work remotely in the same way as perhaps an editor can. But I think that our survey was, in my mind, both a way to empower women to say, you're not alone. You're not the only one who wants flexibility. You're not the only one who thinks, I can't go back to the office five days a week, or my priorities have changed, or I don't feel safe. And, you know, I need to talk about what that looks like. I think both the point of the survey is to make sure that people know that these are big themes and then also to really, I hope, inform workplaces that we do need to rethink what employment looks like, what the state of our offices look like. Are we asking people to come in three days a week? Are we asking people to come in five days a week? Are we giving flexibility with that? I think, you know, it's just a major opportunity for everyone to reevaluate what work really looks like. I love that, especially thinking about other people in the same situation. And I think that's so important to know people are not alone in wanting these things. And frankly, even men too want these things, more of the flexibility going forward. But for women, I think to get them back, the numbers we really want them back in, we do have to think about those things. And flexibility doesn't have to be always working from home. Flexibility might be being able to come early, you know, get in a little bit later or leave a little bit earlier on a day you are in the office, but in a way that makes it work for you. Exactly. So I think that's really important. Do you think these findings will lead to either changes the way you work as well at the magazine, in addition to what you might advocate for others to do? I think that the flexibility piece of it is something that we've always toyed with. If you had said two years ago, you'll be making a full print magazine from home, you will never see these pages in real life until it arrives at your doorstep, which is a couple of the issues. I would have said that's not true. That's impossible. So the fact that we've shown like, not only is it possible, it's happening, you know, whether you like it or not, I think really shows that we need to give credit to our workers and the people that we work with to say, we can give them a little bit more leeway, we can give them, we can empower them to make the decisions about their schedule. And that's something that I'm excited about for my team. That being said, I am someone who's actually excited to get back to the office, who desperately wants to see my team. I do think that there is a a level of creativity that's hard to summon when you're home at my kitchen table right now, looking at a screen. The other thing I miss is also just 
stopping by someone's desk and saying, how was your weekend? You know, that doesn't happen. I have to say, I have to G-chat it to someone or Slack it to someone and set up a call. And then it's immediately scary. It's not just a, hey, how are you? It's a, hey, do you have five minutes? I swear this is not a scary conversation. So there's no organic camaraderie in that way. We've done happy hours and, you know, Zoom karaoke, things like that, that are fun, but they're not the same as in real life interaction, which I think at the end of the day, unfortunately, is the glue that really holds the team together. Oh, I totally agree. And if I have to do one more virtual drink with someone, I think uh, I'm just not interested in that anymore. That being said, I think going forward, say that a lot of my meetings don't have to be in person. And I think especially interviewing candidates for jobs and things like that, you could have the first interviews be over Zoom. And I think that will change people's lives. I don't want to go to so many meetings and run around the city and and have appointments everywhere, not even thinking about it pre-pandemic. So curious about your career growth over the years. Did you have any mentors that were really important to you? And if so, what lessons did they teach you? I have a lot of women in my life that I am so lucky to have worked with or to know, because I will also say my, my own mother is one of them. As I mentioned before, she was a journalist. She was the executive producer of the CBS Evening News and then worked at 60 Minutes. And she was a working mother who also really cared about her children. And she definitely, you know, didn't have it all in that way. And it was okay. And she managed to come to sports games but not all of them and also do her work events and all of that and and show that you can juggle it but like it's it's a it's a job and it's a life and and it's hard that was something that always inspired me growing up i was so lucky to work at new york magazine with stella bugby who um is now at the times but she was running the cut and she got that job when i was there and she is in the cheesiest way i will say the first person who saw me i was working at new york magazine NYMag.com is the homepage editor generally because I was just like, I want to work here. I want a job. I will take this job in crazy boot camp, headline writing. I learned a ton, but that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And the head of NYMag at the time kind of saw that and he said, do you want to go to the meetings with the cut and pitch the cut and things like that? And eventually a job opened up there. But Stella was the first person who, when I pitched ideas, was like, you're funny. This is a good idea. Why don't you pitch more? Why don't you... To talk more in meetings. Like, why don't we work out this idea? Why don't we sit here and say, you know, your idea started one inch big and let's make it 10 feet big. So she is someone who believed in me from the beginning. And I just thought that she was a genius to work with. She was great. And she also, you know, believed in me and let me really try. And I think that one thing I say to my own team is, you know, sometimes you feel like this idea is either really bad or really great. And sometimes you think, oh, God, is this idea just totally off the mark? Or is this really funny and could be amazing? And, and it's nice to have people that provide that safe space to, to talk about it and who also say, like, try it. Let's, let's see where it goes. And then another person in my life that I'm just so lucky to have is Leah Chernikoff, who was my boss at L.com. And she has become one of my close friends now and, and someone that I still turn to for advice and career advice and life advice. And she is just another smart, brilliant writer, brilliant nose for a good story. Um, and someone who has had ambitious ideas from the beginning when the internet was still newish, I think, you know, L.com and MarieClaire.com at the same time were still kind of like magazines that had a website versus the website now, they're both behemoths. So 
she had ideas that I think were, were bigger than what the website had ever seen. And so it was amazing for me to watch her have that and then make it happen and bring in amazing writers and contributors. And then also just encourage me along the way and really support my, my career growth. That is the best when you have felt that yourself and have been coached and mentored by great women. I mean, there's really nothing like it, but it all starts with your mom. So the way you speak about her and what you observed is amazing. And it makes me wonder, did seeing her balance it all, juggle it all, maybe it's a better word, but know that you were a priority to her. Did that help you think about your own approach to work and give you comfort that you may not achieve balance on any given day, but overall you're going to get there and, and to work and find fulfillment in that is still something you should pursue? Definitely. I mean, I think, again, as I said, she's not a superwoman. She's a regular human person. So she made sacrifices that I think that she would say are worth it and that I think that we all thought were worth it. And I I have amazing memories of my childhood. Like I, I remember where I was when Princess Diana died. And I remember where I was for all these big events because she got a call and had to go into work. Uh, she took me with her to the 50th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy to watch these World War II vets jump out of a plane. I mean, I, I just had some really crazy experiences. And I think what she really taught me is that it's cool to love your job. And it's cool to and okay to really, really, really want to work hard. And, you know, I'm married now. One of the things that he has said to me is that he fell in love with how passionate I was about my work and how important and ambitious I am. I do think that he would love if I could turn off a little bit more, maybe turn my Slack off earlier at night, maybe, you know, not care when I get a news alert about XYZ happening. And I will say one amazing thing about my team is, now in this position, I do have people who uh, I, I really trust and I know will, you know, hop on that story. They'll, they'll get on the computer, they'll write the story up that night or the next morning, whatever it is. And I can trust that I'm not carrying this on my own, which obviously is invaluable. But um, I am the kind of person who, you know, wants to, as I said, wants to be in the weeds and get it done myself. But I think it's healthy to set those boundaries. And especially as we've been working from home and it, you know, those lines between the couch and the computer get very blurred. And I don't have that um, commute to, to kind of wind down. It, it's important to set the boundaries. But at the same time, um, I really love my job. So it makes it easier to 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 want to be in the thick of it. I love the setting boundaries. That is a great tip. And so before we go, can you provide us any other leadership tips that either you learned or learned during the pandemic or people passed on to you? You know, something that, especially for our listeners and your readers, you think is really important. Leadership tips. I mean, I think delegating and having a team that you trust is so important so that you can take a step back. I think as someone who just took vacation for the past five days, but worked bits and pieces of it. Taking that mental break is important. And, you know, burnout is real. So I think your own mental health and your own viability in terms of your job is as important as the rest of your team. Because if you're not on and if you're not in it, it's really hard to lead your team and fake it. I think at a certain point, you can't really fake it till you make it. You have to actually be living what you're what you're preaching, just to use all of the cliches in one sentence. The other leadership tip I would say is avoid cliches. But, you know, I do think that making sure that you yourself are happy and feel good about what you're doing is is the best way to lead a team of people 
Well, Sally, thank you so much for being with us. It's been wonderful to talk to you about your career and just hearing about all the things you cover and where you want to take Marie Claire. All the best. It is such an exciting time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sally Holmes. I love learning about her career and her plans to lead Marie Claire's digital first strategy. I also appreciated her view that women have multiple interests and passions from style to activism and everything in between. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.